When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, philosophy, mythology podcast, where we analyze, discuss, and disseminate all of the cool and interesting ideas bubbling up through our popular storytelling. I am incredibly, indubitably, undeniably, indomitably excited to be back with for another week of the Midnight Myth. How are you feeling, Laurel? I'm feeling pretty good. I don't know if I have all of those uh, descriptors in my uh, arsenal, but I'm feeling pretty excited as well. Well, we have a big, big show for you guys this week. We are super excited, so I will uh, I will walk you into how we got to where we are. Laurel and I have been thinking about tackling Disney classic animated movies. We've discussed Zootopia, Lion King, and Moana, if and the Little served, Mermaid, and the Little Mermaid on this already. And it got us thinking we should be doing a continual story where we tackle a part of me, a continual episode where we tackle another classic, iconic, famous and beloved Disney property. And the idea is we're really trying to explore what the role Disney has in both elevating stories, describing stories, influencing culture and where this role really fits within modern storytelling. And for the purposes of this Disney project that we are now kind of engaging in, we're talking primarily the Disney animated features, though we realize Disney is a multinational, multinational corporation that's much bigger than just that. But we really want to focus in on that. So in discussing what we wanted to do with Disney, we realized that Coming up very shortly, the Aladdin remake non-animated version was coming out. So we figured, perfect marriage, let's talk about the Disney animated movie Aladdin. The classic with Robin Williams as the genie, with Jafar and Iago. One of my favorite Disney movies, one of my favorite movies of all time. I am so pumped to discuss this movie with you. And oh my goodness, 
There's so much to talk about. It is such a huge can of worms, and it is, it's impossible to uh, overstate the sort of cultural importance of Disney's adaptations of popular folk tales and fairy tales, uh, just in terms of the popular consciousness of how stories like Cinderella and Snow White and Sleeping Beauty and Aladdin run uh, compared to, you know, the centuries of uh, development of these tales has taken them is really astonishing. And so I think it's an interesting way into sort of uh, in earnest doing this sort of series and exploration of Disney's role in sort of shaping culture to start this line of inquiry with one of the Disney adaptations that is wildly far removed from its source material and yet shapes our perceptions of the source material and the culture that it comes from so hugely. So uh, I'm excited to talk Aladdin. I'm excited to talk about the inspiration, whether that's from the original tales from The Thousand and One Nights or those that were included later, or the sort of Hollywood interpretations of those things. And I'm also excited to uh, look at the uh, the sort of powerful modern progression of those themes, as well as the sort of historical uh, connective tissue that maybe gets ignored and sometimes gets celebrated. So there's a lot to talk about, a lot to unpack. There is so much history, philosophy, and mythology in Aladdin in both the lead up to it and what it delivers. Um, let's just uh, dive right in. Aladdin came out in 1991. It currently has a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is considered by most part of the Disney reimagined reinvention golden era of the 90s, where Disney was just churning out these classics one after another. The Disney Renaissance. Absolutely. So that includes the run that has the Little Mermaid sleeping. Beauty and the Beast. In, uh, Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, Aladdin, uh, thinking I'm forgetting one or two in there, but a ton of really amazing, critically acclaimed, wildly popular movies that have shaped Disney and the Disney Corporation going forward. And Aladdin is certainly one of the most popular and beloved. I think you could walk into any room in America, whether that's a corporate boardroom, whether that's a government room, whether that's somebody's living room, and you can start an Aladdin quote, a song, uh, whatever it is, and people are going to join in because I think everybody has seen this movie and almost universally is loved. So I think we have to pick apart a few big things here. How did this movie come to be? What is its storytelling legacy? And where does that legacy come from? And how does the movie as we know it shape that legacy going forward? And how does it do justice to the legacy going backward? But before we dive too deep into this, um, we've got a lot of amazing things happening at the Midnight Myth podcast. Laurel, why don't you hit us up with that? All right. So the conversation obviously never begins or ends here on the podcast. So we would love for you to engage with us on social media, especially on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. That's where it's all happening. But you can also hit us up on Facebook and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. 
Also, head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com. That's where you're going to find lots of extra content like blogs, including a new one on Avengers Endgame. You're going to find our merch store where you can get your tees and sweatshirts and mugs that are promoting the Midnight Myth podcast for everybody to know how much you love this podcast. You can also sign up for our Patreon This is an amazing thing that we have finally launched. It's an opportunity for you, if you have been enjoying the podcast, to show your support and knowing that we make this podcast for free, just throw a couple of bucks at us a month in order to get access to new and uh, exclusive content. Uh, If you are listening to this now and you are a Patreon member, hopefully by the time you're listening to to this, or at least in the next couple of days, you're going to have access to your first Patreon bonus episode. So that is something that we uh, really appreciate if you are interested in helping to support the podcast to make sure that we can continue to make great content here on The Midnight Myth. Wunderbar, as they say in German. I don't speak German, so I don't know if that's what they say. I think that's what they say. All right, great. Wunderbar. I hope our German listeners will tell us if that's what they say. I would like to start with an idea that Disney represents a near hegemonic Western fairy tale influence. Very big term there. So hegemonic means it's the dominant superpower that's usually used in the arena of international relations. So I'm borrowing that term and applying it to popular storytelling and the entertainment industry writ large. And so I say it's the dominant and almost unilaterally most powerful voice in entertainment, in particular in young adult and children entertainment, at least in my life. And I'd say that's true for most of us listening to this podcast. So it's this hegemonic power, but it's also inherently Western. And Western is a very loaded term. It's debatable what is the East and what is the West. In fact, these definitions are constantly in flux. But we're going to understand that it is Western in the respect that it is about Western European and American and American by North American Um, in its origin, in its inspiration. So many of the classic stories come from European folktales that have been passed down through generation to generation. Uh, Disney in Aladdin was making an attempt to bridge a gap between Western storytelling and Near Eastern storytelling, or more commonly known, Middle Eastern storytelling. The idea of the Near East dates back to this Greek by the name of Herodotus, who wrote the literal first work of history known to humankind, and he called it history. So this is the guy that coined the term. And he he talked about the war between the Greeks and the Persians. There were two Persian invasions, the Persians' invasions from the east versus the Greeks standing to the west. And this is where the intellectual idea that there is something different between the Westerners and the Easterners was first put down to parchment, and we've lived in the shadow of a Herodotus version of a Eastern and Western world ever since. And in this respect, there's a lot of commendable elements to trying to elevate a story from a culture outside of your own. In fact, it's really hard to do because we're comfortable in our own culture. A great example of that we personally, the Midnight Myth, lived through is we are so much more comfortable and so much easier to pluck from things within our wheelhouse than it is to pluck things from outside of our wheelhouse. So I'd like to start with, it's amazing that Disney wanted to take something that was 
potentially inherently non-Western, we'll get to whether it is or isn't later on, and elevate this story. That's my starting point here with Aladdin. They did this at a time when America was actively engaged in a military war, in war, pardon me, with Iraq at that time. Yeah, this is the first Persian Gulf War. This is the first Persian Gulf War. The original script called for the main city to be Baghdad. Correct. But they couldn't really call it Baghdad when America was attacking Baghdad, so they made up this mythical city called Agrabah, to call it Agrabah, to make it this nondescript you know, fairy tale in a like land a long time ago, far, far away, but in the Middle East and made it distinctly non-Western. One of the questions I had in rewatching this movie, which total side rant, rewatching this movie is not easy. No, it's in the vault. It's in the Disney vault, which as you know, once it goes in there, it doesn't come out for a long, long time until it gets, you know, it's platinum reboot or so. Uh, it was surprising to us that like on the heels of its uh, live action remake, it was really hard to find the content on lockdown, but hopefully you've got a DVD or a VHS somewhere, or you just have watched it so many times like we have that uh, it's kind of burned into your memory. Yeah. But you either buy the Blu-ray or you bootleg Aladdin. Those are the only two ways to watch right, it. Yeah. And I'm not a fan of bootlegging. So you know what we did. But anyway, one of my central questions that I came out of the rewatch that we did in preparation for this podcast is, you know, like, I really don't know anything about genies. I think I know things about genies. I know that they live in bottles. I know that they give wishes. I know that they have magical powers. I know that Christina Aguilera was a very famous genie. Absolutely. In a bottle. And I know that they come from the Middle East primarily, But beyond that, I really didn't know much about it. And someone who prides himself on the knowledge of mythic and magical creatures, I realized that this was a big gap in my knowledge. So I started my research into this podcast of what's a genie? How do we get to a genie? Where does a genie come from? I think that's a great place to start, considering that this movie gets by best and is as beloved and memorable as it is because of the performance of the great Robin Williams as the genie. Without that character and without the life that he brought to it, this movie probably would have flown a lot more under the radar. And that becomes the sort of central glue to what holds it in our cultural memory. So I'd love to start with the sort of cultural invention of the genie. Yeah, you know what? I totally 100% agree with you there. And that's why I really was into it. I think the only other caveat I put to why this movie is great Every song is amazing. Every song is gold. Yeah. So it's got the best Disney, like... It's got Alan Menken, yeah. Yeah, it's got the best Disney music coupled with the best Disney side character, the genie, probably ever, and then you get a classic. So to go to the origin of the genie, the genie actually comes from a mythic, well, debatably mythic, depends on your religion, character called, or creature called the djinn. So, and that's spelled J as in Joker, I, N as in Nancy. And the jinn in, it's an Arabic term. So it comes from the Arabs, which are a medieval tribe that have grown to dominance and prominence when they converted to Islam and then started spreading the house of Islam throughout the entire Near East And it has grown to the point where 23% of the humans alive today identify as one form of Muslim or Islamic faith or another. So it is the one of the major world religions. 
So what exactly is a jinn is question that I had one. And then question two is how did the jinn become the genie in the bottle like we know from Robin Williams? And it's a really long track. For starters, not a lot of articles or books out there about this. There's not a lot of people who have tracked the history of the jinn in the way that you can find, at least from my research for this podcast, that you could track the evolution of Perseus or the evolution of Loki. All these other mythical figures from past have a ton of articles easily accessible at different levels from PhDs to, you know, pop culture articles. The gin is a little more elusive in the West, which adds to the sort of Eastern or Near Easternness of this uh, mythological creature. But in the Islamic cosmology, there are these creatures called jinns. They are not angels. They are not devils. They are commonly shapeshifters. Some describe them as having a few like consistent characteristics, such as very hairy legs. And they are incredibly powerful. They are part of the universe as created by God, and they interact as a spiritual intermediary. A jinn lives in their own spiritual plane, but can also interact with our own material plane, and in that they can shape events. The jinn are not bound to the laws of God in the same way that humans are. They are completely, they have free will, in that some are very evil, some are very good. There's also a hierarchy and terminology of different types of jinns. Not every jinn is going to be the same type of jinn. Um, I got most of this um, from a book called From, Eras, from Islam Arabs in the Intelligent World of the Jinn by a writer called Amir El-Zen. And hopefully I didn't brutalize that name. But what this uh, book is trying to highlight is that there's a universal aspect of human cultures in that there is a belief in a non-seen world that interacts and affects our world. And that every single culture has its intermediary by which they can commune with this non-seen world. In the Islamic world, the jinn fills that role. And to it, someone in that is Islamic, it is a very literal thing. It is not a metaphor, nor is it a mythic figure. It is a tangible reality. And reading more in this book, things that I also learned is that the Islamic cosmological view is fundamentally of a multiverse. There are multiple universes and multiple worlds that are existing simultaneously, and the jinn sort of have an ability to pass through many of them, right? It is not just one world that exists in the world of Islam. I had no idea. That's amazing. It's tough for Westerners to kind of reconcile these concepts, let me give you a quote here from this book that I think highlights it. And in the interest of transparency, I did not have time to read all of the book, but I read as much of it as I could before we could uh, record because I found it so fascinating. Understandable. So here's the quote that I thought I wanted to share with you. And again, this is from Islam Arabs and the Intelligent World of the Jinn. Since time immemorial, humans have maintained across traditions that the invisible realm occupies in the universe a much larger part than the manifest or visible domain. Belief in spiritual entities is universal. Humans seem to have at all times thought there is more than what meets the eye. No civilization known to anthropology, regardless of its cultural patterns or historical development, is without corpus of narratives 
that tell of the human belief in interaction with spiritual entities. End quote. The idea of the jinn as the intermediary between the physical and the spiritual in a universe that is bigger and more impressive and harder for humans and maybe impossible for humans to fully perceive and know. That is the space in which the jinn occupies. There's not a real consensus that I found pre-Islam if there was a belief in the jinn or not. I couldn't find any evidence, but then again, there's not a lot of people writing about it that I could find. The prevailing theory I found was that the jinn may have been an oral tradition before Islam, and Islam was the first to pen it down to paper and put it into an actual world and a religious and spiritual view. How does this sort of elusive, shape-changing creature become the genie in the bottle? Because there's a few weird things. A jinn and a genie, they're not the same word. So how does this happen? Well, there's a few things. One, in Islam, there is a belief in magic and wizardry and sorcery. However, it's forbidden. But there are many sources that say that you can, with a magic spell, tie a jinn to a physical object. And if you can tie a jinn to a physical object, you could then command the jinn and wield the power. And though many people believe you can do this, it's also strictly forbidden to do this. So there's a linkage between the jinn and a physical object. Checkmark, genie, bottle. But the word genie is in and of itself not the same as jinn. So how does it become the term genie? And this is even harder to pin down. So genie is actually part of a Latin word with the and is a Latin word genie, and it dates back to Rome. Um, however, there's some debates that they may have adopted it from another tribe that existed in the ancient Italian peninsula called the Etruscans, who the Rome conquered and then absorbed, so they're not sure. And that the word genie is the genesis of words like genesis, like genius. Genius, yeah. It represents a spiritual entity that guides a person on their journey. And someone who is meant to be incredibly powerful and wise and brave is a genius. You start at the genesis. This word at the it connotates the beginning of a journey and the spirit that guides you there. It's thought that in the earliest translations from Arabic into Latin of the jinn, it was mistranslated to the genie. And that's how we get the term genie. This seems to have occurred in the 18th century by a French author who was the first author to write down the tale 1001 Nights, the mythic tales of the Middle or Ancient Near East that became known to the West as Aladdin. As the Arabian Nights or the tales of the 1001 Nights. Uh, that's uh, an amazing intro to the idea of the jinn and the genie and these sort of Islamic uh, theological touch points that become the basis of so many of the stories from the 1001 Nights that inspire movies like Aladdin and so much more in the imagination of the West as we start to perceive the Middle East, as we start to perceive the world past these sort of borders that we've built between our hemispheres. And one thing I think I want to meditate, maybe come back to later in the pod, what does it mean for the jinn to become the genie than to become Robin Williams? And I don't know if I have the answer Oh, yet. wow. 
What does that mean? What can we extrapolate from this journey beyond celebrating the majesty and beauty of storytelling? Because it's amazing. That's just a fantastic journey from medieval Arabs with their beliefs to a dominant world religion, to a translation, to a bunch of stories that captivated the West, to now this amazing iconic character. There's just, to me, an inherent beauty in this journey, but what does it really mean is a question that I'm still kind of wrestling with. Absolutely. So to kind of pick up the baton where you left it, I would love to give a little bit of context to the 1001 Nights and the original source material of the story of Aladdin and his enchanted lamp. So uh, the 1001 Nights is a collection of folktales from the Middle East, which were compiled over several centuries. So some of these have ancient roots, but mostly these were compiled between the 8th and 14th centuries during what's known as the Islamic Golden Age. So it's an important thing to point out and to recognize that while the Western world, while the European continent and the Roman Empire uh, after its fall and the you know countries that had been part of that were deeply navigating a dark age, uh, as some people like to call it, and into kind of a, a an Enlightenment philosophy, the Islamic world was experiencing a golden age. And many of the understandings of like great Western texts are from Islamic translations of those texts that they were able to preserve and give back to the Western world. So it's an important thing to recognize. Uh, just to call something out, not to interrupt you. Yeah. When you say text, you, you specifically mean things like Plato and yeah. Aristotle. That, that we only have because the Islamic world was preserving this and translating it for us. Correct. And I just wanted to call specific text out I there. appreciate that. Thank you. So the tales that are incorporated in the Thousand and One Nights are not unified. They are by many different authors or they're built from an oral tradition and they exhibit influence from cultures as disparate as Arabic, Indian, sometimes Greek or Jewish, Persian and Turkish. It's from all over the continents uh, in the Eastern Hemisphere of the world. And there are so many varying compilations of the nights that it is a, a tangled endeavor to try and understand the publication history of it. And some scholars have created some really coherent timelines for how this worked out, but it is way too complicated for me to uh, list out here on the podcast. So I would definitely uh, encourage looking into some of what scholars have been doing with the work on the nights. But they all have one thing in common, which is the framing device, the frame story of the Thousand and One Nights. And it concerns a uh, somewhat tyrannical king uh, who discovers that his first wife has been horribly unfaithful and he has her executed. Then he finds out that his brother's wife has also been unfaithful and he has her executed as well. And seeing the uh, infidelity of these two women leads this king to believe that all women are unfaithful and need to be punished. So he... And he embarks on this journey to marry all of the virgins in the land, a succession of virgins, and every night he marries one of them, spends the night with them, and in the morning he executes them. And then, after he's seemingly run out of women to marry and execute, his vizier reluctantly says, okay, you can have my daughter. His daughter is named Scheherazade, and Scheherazade is extraordinarily clever. So she marries this king, And on their wedding night, after they spend the night together, she has an idea. 
and she starts telling a story. And she tells a story that is so compelling and so fascinating and so funny and so full of adventure and ends on a cliffhanger that the king can't wait to hear the ending. So he stays her execution for one night. And the next night she finishes the story, but she also begins another story. And it ends on a cliffhanger. And the king says, ah, I can't wait to hear the end of the story. And this goes on for 1,001 nights. And the king stays her execution every night until years have passed. And finally, at the end, after he has gone on this incredible odyssey of these adventures and these stories of these disparate characters, he realizes uh, the sort of injustice that he's done to Scheherazade, and he grants her a pardon. So it's kind of an amazing uh, framing device for all of the incredible stories that she weaves throughout the nights. And one of them, uh, in some versions of the tales, includes the story of Aladdin. What's sometimes most surprising to us about this is that the story of Aladdin was not included in, in the Thousand and One Nights until the early 18th century, when it was translated into a European language for the first time by the French writer Antoine Galland. So Galland translates the knights into French, and he includes a handful of stories that were not found in any other earlier manuscripts. These include uh, the voyages of Sinbad the Sailor, which was originally its own independent tale cycle, and he just absorbs into the Thousand and One Nights. And then there were two others, uh, one known as Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves, and the other known as Aladdin and his Enchanted Lamp. And both of these he claims to have learned from a Syrian storyteller named Hana Diab. And it's unclear at this point how much of the story was his own invention. So while there was definitely this influence of this Syrian storyteller, it's a, a sort of interesting thing to look at how the three probably most famous stories from the Thousand and One Nights are not at all included in the original medieval manuscripts that uh, lay out what these stories are that kind of shape the Western uh, perception of the Middle East. And the most commonly known in the West, Sinbad, the Forty Thieves, and Aladdin, all were added by a Frenchman. All were added by a Frenchman in the 18th century. You know, we have discussed, I believe it was in our Robin Hood Prince of Thieves podcast, we have discussed a, a phenomenon that criticizes Orientalism and the study of the Orient as one monolithic people. So I won't fully rehash that here, but in the simplest way and quickest way is that Orientalism is when the Western culture and academic culture describes and organizes and stereotypes the Eastern culture for their own benefit to make it easier to understand. And what we're seeing happening here is a very, you know, 18th century, so 1700s Orientalist version of storytelling, rewriting these tales for the Westerner, casting these in, in the characters in the guise that benefits the Westerners to help them understand the East, and then popularizing it and profiting off of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to move on from there into the sort of source material of the Aladdin tale, 
uh, and what that tale is within The Thousand and One Nights. It's so interesting to note the stark differences between that and what we end up with in Disney. Uh, the original story of Aladdin that Galand gives us in his translation takes place in China, uh, although it's really a vague China that has, uh, you know, all of the trappings of any medieval Islamic city that's included in the knights. It has a sultan. It has uh, these Arabic names like Aladdin and the princess whose name is Badr al Budr. Uh, a lot harder for me to say than Jasmine, but it means uh, full moon of full moons in Arabic. And the setting of it in China generally is assumed to uh, suggest that this is just a vague, abstract, faraway place. So even in the sort of Arabic construct of the tale, it would have been to say a long time ago and far, far away uh, to set this tale in China and not give it any of the specificity of what a Chinese city would actually look like. And that echoes very much what we get in Agrabah. In order to uh, divorce it from the specificity and the sort of difficulty of confronting what the sort of Western idea of what the Middle East actually looks like, instead of calling it Baghdad, we call it Agrabah. We make it this vague, uh, quote-unquote, exotic-looking and abstract place that we don't have to put into any reality as in order to... Um, confront the fact that we are, in fact, bombing these people. So there is a complicated history around, you know, setting it in an abstract and faraway place. But the story begins with Aladdin, who uh, was the son of Mustafa the tailor, who has recently passed away. And he's not an orphan. He lives with his mother. But the two of them are worried that they're going to slide into poverty. And that's the day that a very strange and mysterious sorcerer comes to town. And this man claims to be the brother of Aladdin's late father. Uh, this man uh, offers to make the boy Aladdin a wealthy merchant. But what follows is, of course, a, a trickery. It's essentially the Cave of Wonders scene that we see in the Disney film, where Aladdin is tricked into entering a magical cave that for some reason he's the only one who can enter in order to retrieve a magic lamp for the sorcerer. But Aladdin gets trapped in the cave. The sorcerer has given him a magic ring, which he, when he rubs his hands together in despair, releases a djinn or a jinni, who helps him to escape the cave with the lamp. So here's already a, a huge departure from the, the story that we know from Disney, Aladdin has two jinn. He has the jinni of the ring and the jinni of the lamp, as they're known. And the jinni of the lamp is far more powerful than the jinni of the ring. Why are you calling them jinni? So jinni is the singular and jinn is the plural in the Arabic translation. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And that's probably a huge part of why genie and genie as cognates got so confused in the translation by Antoine Galland. Got it. Thank you. Absolutely. So back at home, Aladdin's mother tries to clean the lamp thinking, oh, this thing is so dirty. I should clean it. And she releases that more powerful genie. So then Aladdin has two gin. And Aladdin gets into his mind that uh, he should, with this newfound power, find a way to marry the princess, but she's already promised to the son of the sultan's vizier. Uh, the vizier is a political advisor. You know him in the Disney movie as Jafar, but he's sort of like a hand of the king figure. And in this uh, version of the story, you might as well think of the vizier and 
the sorcerer as being combined into the Jafar figure for Disney. So on her wedding night, on the princess's wedding night to the son of the vizier, Aladdin has the genie help him to magically transport the wedding bed out of the palace without the groom so that he can spend the night with the princess with a sword in between them. It's a really weird image. And when I first read this as a young person, I was like, I've never seen anything like this in my life. That's the strangest thing I've ever heard of. How would you use that to get a woman to fall in love with you? It's a lot less romantic than taking her on a magic carpet ride. I was going to say that. But it also has some surprising echoes with European folklore and medieval romance. It's a, a motif that is probably best known for featuring in the tales of Tristan and Isolde, which get absorbed into the Arthurian legend uh, later in the Middle Ages. The sword symbolizes chastity and fidelity. If there's a sword lying between you, the lovers obviously can't come together. So there's sort of an interesting question to be asked there in terms of the Galan translation of this tale. Uh, Was he including motifs like that because he was infusing his version of the tale with these medieval romance and these European folktale motifs? Or was this already present in the version of the tale that the Syrian storyteller was giving him because of that innate cultural exchange between the East and the West that uh, sort of blows a hole in our idea of the divide between them? So very interesting thing there. So he does this for several nights. Aladdin does this for several nights where he transports the princess's bed out just as she's about to consummate her marriage with the vizier's son. And finally, that results in her getting an annulment and him being able to marry the princess. This will eventually culminate in the uh, magician who has fled back to North Africa, hearing the tales of what's going on with this wunderkind Aladdin and heading back, and then having a final showdown as the uh, magician gets control of the genie of the lamp. So it begins to resemble the final act of the Disney tale. But it's a wildly different adaptation, and Disney's uh, version of the story probably owes a greater debt to a 1940 film called The Thief of Baghdad than uh, this Thousand and One Nights translation. But I do think it's interesting to call out the sort of Uh, very specific sort of European notions that get absorbed into Galan's translation and Galan's interpretation of the Thousand and One Nights as we start to recognize that, like, in many senses, the Thousand and One Nights ignited the Western imagination as far as our perceptions of the East go uh, and inspired so, so many interpretations from... Uh, great art like James Joyce to the Looney Tunes and Popeye the Sailor, but probably didn't hold this much of a sway over the Arab world itself. Uh, There was a perception that this was low culture, that this was pop, because this was a golden age as this was all coming together, and there was high art and high culture to contrast it with, whereas these folk tales were very much uh, popcorn. Which brings me to a meditation I kind of started with at this podcast to bring it full circle. Can we, and should we even understand and interpret Aladdin as a non-Western story? There is evidence to suggest it may have been a Western invention all along, or 
loosely inspired by one story told from a Syrian to a Frenchman, which which there's very little documentation of that conversation, how that even went, if it even happened. And there's a potential that Aladdin is the Orientalist fairy tale manifest. It is the story to help created by the West to help understand the East. It's, hey, if we were writing a fairy tale, if we Westerners were writing a fairy tale for the Near Easterners, we would write Aladdin. And in that vein, we get the Aladdin from Disney. Now, I'm going to go out here and say the Aladdin from Disney is a phenomenal movie. It's great. Without a doubt, it's a classic, and I love it. And I do think it does demonstrable good to people who see it in terms of its entertainment value, its ability to inspire people to learn music. It's funny. It is an engaging story. It has a fantastic hero and villain. It's got a talking bird named Iago. I mean, it's just full of fantastic shit. But from the lens of history, mythology, and philosophy, there are parts of it that start to crumble. In particular, understanding the legacy of the jinn, how the genie of the bottle that we see has nothing to do with its legacy whatsoever, and it is very much a watered-down, taming, and mainstreaming version of what a jinn would be in the most friendly and non-threatening guise, where the jinn is actually more complex and more interesting and more difficult to grapple with from a Western perspective than what we get there. We also have some interesting choices made deliberately in the movie that cast a larger Orientalist shadow over the whole project, which despite its charms and its good, I think need to be discussed. Of course, yeah. And before I dive into this, I want to say my ability to love Aladdin and discuss this discuss this is inherently privileged. And I want to recognize my privilege. I am not of the culture that's being stereotyped in this movie. And so I don't want to say that I am speaking for those that have been stereotyped or are being stereotyped by it. And I want to say that before I dive into that. I think that is worth saying. Yeah. I have a place of privilege and I recognize that and I recognize all voices to come in to to discuss it. But I want to point out some specific pieces of evidence that watching this as an adult, having not seen it for very many years, in particular one who is a student of history, went, whoa. I want to draw, and this is very granular, people, so you're going to have to follow with me. There is a point where Aladdin enters the Cave of Wonders, and the cave is undoubtedly covered in treasure. And there is one frame where we see in the background a mythical creature called a Lamassu. It won't surprise me if you've never heard of a Lamassu before. In fact, you've had to have studied ancient Assyrian history to know what a Lamassu is. As it happens, I have studied ancient Assyrian history. But it breaks down like this. A Lamassu is a creature that has five legs, the body of a horse, and the head of a man. The man is often and almost universally in a Lamassu depicted with a beard, and they have the traditional crown slash headdress of an ancient Near Eastern god, which was eventually worn by ancient Near Eastern kings who came to call themselves living gods. 
there was an empire that rose out of a power vacuum in the ancient world that had a massive amounts of territory in the ancient Near East in the 14th to the 11th century before the common era BCE called the Assyrians. That name might sound familiar because they hailed from the modern territory, what we now call Syria. In fact, the modern Syrians traced their lineage to the ancient Assyrians. And the Assyrians were fantastic at um, building and stonework and making amazing pieces of art, unparalleled in the ancient world, even to the Egyptians. The downside is the Assyrians, when their empire toppled, most of their art got destroyed because they were asshole military overlords. And when their empire fell apart, people destroyed everything they had. But they built the one of the things that might resonate with you listeners is the library of Tel Naviv, which got destroyed. That was the Assyrians. Alamasu, its job was to guard the king. And in an Assyrian throne room, it would often be adorned by Alamasu on the left and in the right. If you've been to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and been to their ancient Near East exhibit, you've seen Lamassus. These statues are mammoth, usually 10 to 30 feet tall, and they're gorgeous. There's a Lamassu in the Cave of Wonders in Aladdin. Now, this may seem like a throwaway detail, and it may seem like I'm being nitpicky. In fact, I actually am being nitpicky. But here is why I would say it's significant. The ancient Assyrian Empire, the ones that built these amazing statues of the Lamassus, were gone for a very long time before the rise of Islam, before the rise of the culture that creates, apparently created Aladdin. The ancient, or the pardon me, the medieval Arabs were not going around making statues of Lamassus. Why is an ancient Assyrian in the cave, an ancient Assyrian mythological symbol of paganism and kinship and kingship, pardon me, in the cave of wonders in a monotheistic Arab tale? There's one answer because it looks Near Eastern. That's the only reason. It looks different, it looks foreign, it looks exotic, it looks Near Eastern. It is fundamentally Orientalist, which means somebody went to the trouble in Disney to find what a Lamassu was and to draw it in there because they thought it was cool, not checking that it has no connection to the medieval world it was trying to create and connect to. Well, and you combine that with the fact that on the magic carpet ride, as they leave the Palace of the Sultan, which resembles the Taj Mahal of India... They travel through ancient Egypt and wind up in Tiananmen Square, apparently, in China. And all of these things are considered to be a hop, skip, and a jump from each other, besides the fact that they are in vastly different countries and are from vastly different cultures. And they are all kind of put together in this let's throw everything Eastern at the wall and see what sticks philosophy that is very reminiscent of the French translation of Aladdin saying, let's just set it in China, but have a sultan and have it look like everything else that is in the Thousand and One Nights without a whole lot of uh, necessarily research into what it would be like to have an authentic uh, representation of this world. Absolutely. And, you know, I totally agree with that. I think it's worth noting, too, in the Magic Carpet Ride, they also, what 
looks like go through ancient Greece as well. So just, I mean, some things. The Sphinx is often dated to the first kingdom of ancient Egypt. And I know that's a big historical term, but you're talking somewhere around like 3000 BC, maybe earlier. That's when the Sphinx was being made. And they show the Sphinx there operating in tandem with medieval Islam. That That's problematic for a whole variety of, of levels in the same way that the Lamassu is problematic because it links this Easternness to this paganness and these ancient world religions that no longer exist, that aren't even informing and inspiring the mythology. It's ignoring these spiritual an intellectual tradition that Aladdin's supposed to live under, which is the house of Islam and says, there's really not that much difference between the ancient Assyrians, the ancient Egyptians and medieval Islam. Right. Then it takes a like hard left turn into ancient Greece, which is also gone, you know, by the time of, you know, Islam, Greece was living under the Byzantium empire or the Byzantine empire and was more Roman than it was actually Greek, even though they did speak Greek so it's a very different Greece that you have that would exist during this time. And then you end up in China because magic rug. Yeah. And this is not to call out these things as necessarily plot holes because who cares? It's magic. They can, there's a genie, they right, can fly. Right. It's the, it's the idea of the intellectual slipperiness just to say, this is one easy foreign soup that we can sell to people without really doing the work of respecting the tradition from where it comes from, which is where we go back to, is Atlantan multi, Aladdin, pardon me, multicultural, or is it just Western? And I think it's really just Western. It's a Western movie for Westerners that just happens to take place in a supposed medieval Islamic world. That is uh, just capitalizing on the fact that for, you know, a couple of centuries, Hollywood and uh, and the European continent and the British Isles have had a sort of fetishistic fascination with the sort of imaginarium of the East and of the Middle East. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, an extraordinarily important point to make about this movie. Um, and, I mean, and it might sound like I hate this movie. I don't. I actually adore it. No, I cherish I mean, it. <laughs> yeah, know, like, but I think as we you know revisit pieces of pop culture from our past, it's important to recognize these things and to say like, Hey, I watched this movie for, a, for my entire life, not realizing that it actually hurt people and it did hurt people. Uh, there was notably right after the movie came out an extreme backlash to the lyrics, especially of uh, the film's opening song, Arabian nights. And this is by no means the only, you know, uh, Middle Eastern stereotype that's portrayed in the film, but the lyrics were actually changed to the opening song after the film's release. This is the Oscar-winning score by Howard Ashman and Alan Menken that the uh, Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee said was not acceptable. The opening lyrics said, I come from a land from a faraway place where the caravan camels roam, where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. And the new lyrics say... Uh, where it's flat and immense and the heat is intense, it's barbaric, but hey, it's home. So they were able to change two lines of the lyrics, but they retained the 
sort of barbarian connotation, and they didn't obviously change any of the other negative stereotypes of uh, people of the Islamic world or people of the Middle East that are uh, perpetuated throughout the rest of the movie. And I just want to call something out here. The term barbaric and barbarian has a long lineage. Yeah. And it goes back to my man Herodotus, who I brought up earlier in the podcast, who wrote the history of the Persian Wars. As far as anyone knows, he coined this term barbarian. And it means non-Greek speaking. Right. It means sounding bar, 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 barbarian. The idea of the term barbarian in ancient Greece is that the Persians attacking the Greeks spoke a language so harsh to Herodotus's ears, he called it the barbarians to say that it was non-Greek, non-civilized, and brutish to his ear. And it came to define the entirety of the East versus West um, intellectual paradigm and battle that we still live in and under the shadow of today. And it is still incredibly important to call it out because them using the term barbaric in the opening song about a Middle East Agrabah is completely unaware that the word barbaric was originally coined by Greeks to describe Middle Easterners back in the ancient world. I doubt anyone who wrote that lyric even knew that. In fact, you know, unless you've studied history, you might not know that. However, if your goal is to try to access and elevate and accentuate different voices in your storytelling, you do kind of have an obligation to do the research and maybe not call the culture you're trying to elevate barbaric in the very first scene. Absolutely. Uh, and it's interesting that, you know, Aladdin as a, as a movie uh, incorporates mostly uh, British and European tropes from the literary canon. Uh, Iago is the name of the parrot who sits on Jafar's shoulder, of course, and that connotes Iago, who is the major villain of Shakespeare's Othello. Uh, and that's got an interesting orientalized uh, history as well. If we think about uh, Othello, who is portrayed as the Moor of uh, Shakespeare's storytelling, but who has often been played by actors like Laurence Olivier in blackface in you know the greatest his the, the the greatest swath of the history of the productions of that play. So it's got its own tangled history of that. Uh, and then you've got Jafar calling Jasmine the Shrew at a point during uh, the movie. So we we have this uh, allusion to. Uh, Shakespeare's *The Taming of the Shrew* and what a um, an ungrateful or uh, headstrong woman is perceived as in a patriarchal culture. But I do think that is an important thing to point out within the structure of Aladdin is how, at the very least, uh, this Disney movie stands as definitely not a feminist text but stands as an important, uh, pivotal, like, turning point in the conception of the Disney princess, uh, away from being a damsel in distress and toward being, uh, you know, a more actualized individual who is 
uh, bent on free will and making her own choices. I think Jasmine is an incredible character as far as Disney princesses go. And I do think that owes a debt of gratitude to Shahrazad. I think that owes a debt of gratitude to the Thousand and One Nights. Uh, and we would be remiss if we didn't make that connection because at the end of the day, the Thousand and One Nights, and if you haven't, I encourage you to read it because it is one of the most entertaining and thoughtful and amazing uh, you know, compilations of stories that we have. And there are several translations, but I will link a couple of them on the website, www.midnightmyth.com, so that you can get your hands on critical and important and thoughtful translations of this work. Uh, it is a story narrated by a woman who is trapped by circumstance, who feels there is no way out for her except to use what little power she has, which is language, which is storytelling. And through the process of telling a story to a man in power who has power over her life or death, Scheherazade says, well, at least I can pique his interest. At least I can weave a web with this tale that will make him interested in the stories of the common man, of the street rats, of the orphans, of the tailors, of the sailors, of the porters, of people who come from vastly different lots of society and vastly different cultures, and I will make him think about this. And as you read through several translations of this work, you'll notice that there are dozens of strong women who appear in various versions of the tales, and they get stronger and stronger as Scheherazade comes closer and closer to her impending death. And through that, we learn that storytelling is something that can change the world. And I think that is uh, deeply and inextricably tied with this question of patriarchy and this question of women's empowerment that I think gets actualized through Jasmine. And Jasmine is one in a long line toward a more empowered Disney princess. But I think it's very, very important to say, hey, a woman being able to make a choice uh, in a patriarchal society is a big, big step when it comes to Disney, and she doesn't get that without Scheherazade having that same choice centuries ago. Here, here. I, uh, I am reflecting here now at the end of this episode, and I am really wondering about the legacy of Aladdin, and it's a legacy of joy and a legacy of great music and iconic actors with fantastic characters but it is also a legacy that is wrought with uh, cultural antagonism, massive stereotypes done to benefit and to make the East more consumable and profitable for the West. And I really don't know where I stand on this movie now at the end of this podcast. Though I love it and though I adore it for its pure entertainment value, which is gold, it to me... Um, tames the gin and makes it something that it was never intended to be in the Islamic spiritual tradition. It is potentially just invented by a Westerner to help uh, sell this uh, copy that he was trying to translate of the Arabian Nights. And um, it, ha it perpetuates some very tone-deaf 
Orientalist stereotypes in it, and I'm not sure where I stand on it anymore. I don't know if Aladdin does more good than harm. I really don't. I Yeah, I, I understand that, and I agree with it. I think the most important thing that we can take away from this is something that we urge on the Midnight Myth a lot, which is uh, actively engage with your media, especially your media that is geared towards young people, because young people internalize stereotypes. They absolutely do, more than uh, than adults do. That is baked into us very, very young, and it doesn't take a lot for somebody to internalize uh, a negative stereotype of people who come from different cultures. It also doesn't take a lot for people to learn to love people from other cultures for their differences. So it's important when you are consuming media for young people, especially if you are like engaged in the monumental task of raising young people, to be actively engaged in that media and to be conscious and to be active in terms of educating your children as far as the stereotypes that are contained within. Uh, I think it's something that we should all take forward into our daily lives is actively consuming. Well, and also there is a argument that when you have the power to translate a text from one language to another, what is your role in shaping how that text then reflects the culture where it's coming from? And if you are like, hey, there are these very popular you know, folk tales in medieval manuscripts in Arabic, and I want to put them into French, what gives you the right to add new stories to that? And, you know, like, and when you do that, what happens when you do that? Because you're not actually reflecting the original text that you're trying to translate. And there is an argument here of what does it mean when there is cross-cultural communication? How is that done? Who does it? Why do they do it? And what is their intentions when they're doing it is a very powerful question because when you translate it and say, this is an Arabic tale and you invented it, embellished it, or changed it, you end up then creating an Aladdin, which is designed, I would hope Disney's intention, which is to tell a Middle Eastern story, which is actually not telling a Middle Eastern story at all. And until next time, guys. Be kind. Be kind. (laughs) 